Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Dr. Jess Armine. We're coming to you from the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine here in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. With me tonight is my is uh, my partner and my guest, Sean Bean, who's a clinical nutritionist. Say hi, Sean. Hi, guys. How are you doing tonight? <laughs> I thought he was going to say hi, Sean. <clears throat> Um, to begin with, I'd, really, I'd like to uh, redefine again what bioindividualized medicine is. Bioindividualized medicine takes genetics and integrative medicine to a new level. By combining the knowledge of neuroendoimmunology, epigenetics and nutrigenomics, acquired or secondary mitochondrial dysfunction, and cell wall integrity, the practitioner trained and experienced in this arena has the capability of identifying and treating not only the root causes of dysfunction, but also attending to the downstream effects. That is, fixing whatever primary causative agents, fixing whatever the primary causative agent did to the body. This must be done on an individual basis. Each person is different with varied requirements. Practitioners of this paradigm. Sean Bean and myself, and many more real soon, are finding answers that have eluded others and are developing treatments that show promise in eradicating chronic illness and returning patients to normal function. The thing about bioindividualized medicine is it's not just methylation. It is not just one thing. It is a conglomeration of considerations that are affecting, that can be affecting your body. Does anybody wonder why a Lyme patient may continue to be sick no matter how many times they've been hit with the antibiotics? It's because nobody is treating what I like to call the downstream effects or what the Lyme did to the body. In our paradigm, in our way of thinking, we look at everything, what the cause is and what the cause did to the body, and we fix all of it. <clears throat> to that end, Sean has started a new blog uh, called Bioindividualized Medicine. It's on Facebook. So please uh, join us, and um, the discussions have been lively and uh, good. So today we are going to be talking about the female hormones. And uh, Sean is on, on board, and I have a little thing at the end, and we're going to save a good 20 minutes at the end for questions and answers. So I'm hoping everybody calls in and texts in. I am on the chat. Okay, so anybody who's got questions, I'll be right here. Sean, my friend, go for it. Jess, how many times do you get females that walk into your office that are complaining that their breasts are swollen, they can't put rings on their fingers, my period becomes irregular, I have PMS, uh, my boobs hurt when I get hugs, and they also have a history of fibroid endometriosis, and, you know, they're always complaining about they can't fit in their shoes, and they're tired all the time. Well, I hear this constantly from women, um, my clients, and, again, multiple factors can be contributed to this. Uh, could be also be thyroid, adrenals, but, you know, they're all interlinked together, um, when you're dealing with what's known as estrogen dominance, this is mainly dealt with from a female perspective, but as last week we noted, that it also affects males as well, too. Um, I had the pleasure of going through this, which made me more in touch with my feminine side. Um, so when all the women are complaining about their boobs are hurting, they don't fit into their clothes, or that, you know, 
they feel bloated. Uh, I can totally sympathize with you. It's just that I don't. I haven't had the fortune. I haven't had the fortune of actually going through a period yet. But that's anatomically impossible to happen. So I think every male has to go through this, or they may be going through this at one time or another, um, because it's called grumpy old man syndrome. Okay, and you know, guys, women, you know, are known to get up to around that time of the month when, you know, they start complaining a little bit more or they may become paranoid. But it really depends what, what their genetic predispositions are. And we're going to get into that later on down the road. Um, but right now, I just want to go briefly what estrogen dominance is, how it happens, and what factors may be contributing to it. Um, many of the diseases that are associated that could be um, that are associated with estrogen dominance or what we know that are the imbalance between estrogen and progesterone in females. They could, they could um, range from weight gain to secondary um, um, weight gain to insulin resistance to ovarian cyst to fibroids, um, menstrual disturbances, which would be emotional, um, bloating. Um, it can be also from migraines are a big factor. Um, my friend, my good friend Susie Cohan just wrote a wonderful book called About Migraines, um, being published in January, and I'm actually featured in her book in one of the areas uh, in relationship to detoxification. Uh, I think it's going to be a very, very good seller. Um, Susie Cohen is known as America's Greatest Pharmacist. Um, and I'm sure a lot of the women are familiar with her. She's very similar to Suzanne Summers. Um, with her methodologies and her devotion to health. Um, but, you know, when you're dealing with estrogen dominance, what are the concerning factors that get us into this position in the first place, okay? First of all, we live in a sea of estrogens, okay? The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat is all contaminated with estrogens, Okay. Um, a lot of the estrogens that are coming from the air are coming from what's known as xylene. Okay, xylene is basically a petrofuel that's it's a petroleum-based product that comes from um, that's representation from gasoline fumes. Um, and a lot of the people in larger cities that I deal with, like New York um, and California areas, a lot of them have this high level of xylene in them. And they don't know wonder what, then they wonder why. Uh, one case I had was from a woman, and I asked her, I said, by the way, do you live in a big city? She goes, yeah. I said, what city do you live in? She's like, San Francisco. I'm like, well, where's your, where's your house located at? Next to the highway. So they've been breathing in this air for a long time and never knowing the effects that it has on them. Um, so xylene is major. It's a component of, of to, toiling um, as well. That's it has to do with proper benzene detoxification. Um, one of the major contributing factors um, to estrogen dominance is a low-fiber diet. The lower the fiber, the higher the estrogen will be. Um, the higher the fiber, the less likelihood estrogen will get into the bloodstream. One of the reasons what, why is why, low fiber diet. I was going to ask you, why is that, Sean? No, no, I was going to ask you, why um, is that, Sean? <laughs> one of the reasons why low fiber diet 
tends to cause a lot of problems is, is we need fiber to help sweep out the estrogens uh, that may be formulating in our systems from either an on, or endogenous production or exogenous um, coming from food itself. One of the reasons why uh, estrogen dominance is associated with a lower fiber diet is, is because lower fiber will cause the sex hormone binding globulin to decrease. And when sex hormone binding globulin decreases, what happens is, is the estrogen becomes more, the estrogen, the circulated estrogen becomes more bioavailable. Um, this is why women in PCOS, I always recommend them eat a higher fiber diet because high fiber diets will actually increase sex hormone body globulin, which will actually decrease the lower circulate, circulating estrogens in your system. Uh, this also goes for males too. Uh, if a person has a um, lower SHBG, I'll look at their fiber content to see if they're eating enough fiber or they're um, by raising the fiber may actually increase SHBG. Believe it or not, a lot of people that are in the paleo diets have a higher SHBG because of, number one, the um, lower fiber, which is making, um, and lower insulin levels as well. So that's a huge factor because um, we, we have to get those toxins out of the system, and fiber helps to, to push that through the colon. Uh, another factor where this comes in play is, is is what's known as xenoestrogens. Xenoestrogens are your PCB, um, pesticides, DDT, and these cause major problems. Also, you can add um, um, the one that's found in baby, one that's found in uh, baby bottles, uh, Jesse. I'm having the brain right now. Bisphenol. Yeah. Um, yeah, bisphenol BPA. A. BPA. BPA. Yeah, BPAs are also associated with that. Another reason which estrogen dominance occurs, how many people are using, how many kids are being fed microwaved food that are cooked in plastic? Whenever you eat, whenever you heat plastic in a microwave, you're going to potentially have that plastic melt into your food. This also has to go with saran wrap as a ma another major component of where estrogen dominance can happen in simply by microwaving your food. And I can only imagine how many parents out there who are trying to help their kids by um, with providing them food, you know, they send their kids off to go to school and they got micro, you know, microwave raviolis that they put them on high heat for three minutes in a plastic container, um, which they may not know that they may be doing more damage um, to their kids because of that. So that's a huge component. Another way estrogen dominance happens is within the gut. Within the gut, you have good bacteria and bad bacteria. When bad bacteria take over, when bad bacteria take a foothold in the gut, when you have overgrowth, what happens is, is those pathogenic bacteria have the potential to produce an enzyme, which which is um, which allows estrogen to be recirculated back through the system to wreak havoc on the liver. So you have get an overloading of the liver, 
from your pathogenic bacteria. That's why anybody that has dysbiosis of the bowel, I will always recommend calcium deglucurates um, because this helps decrease that glucurization that the pathogenic bacteria produce, which allows the estrogen to run rampant. <clears throat> um, while you're on the subject of that, what's the difference in using calcium deglucurate and DIM? Uh, calcium deglucurate will help to flush the estrogens out. DIM will shift conversion from the two from the 4 and 16 hydroxy to the 2, which is the more protective one. Uh, with women with breast cancer, when they did a study over in Italy, they found through a urinary output that there was less 2-hydroxy and more 4 and 16 hydroxys, which, was a which is a potential sign of a higher risk of breast cancer because of the... Um, because of the greater ratio of the mm -hmm. bad to good. So, um, and DIM, DIM will not lower estrogen, it just changes the conversion. Calcium deglucurate, you've got to be careful with, because calcium deglucurate will not only deactivate estrogens, but if a person is taking testosterone, thyroid, cortisol, or any kind of other hormone, it may also lower those levels as well. So I had um, a client who was taking an excessive amount of calcium deglucurate, and she was wondering why she was showing hypothyroid symptoms, even taking her thyroid meds. When I evaluated the situation and looked at the underlying pathology and went through the history, I went through her supplements, and I said, by the way, did you know you're taking 2,000 milligrams of calcium deglucurate? She goes, yeah, it's supposed to be for cancer prevention. I said, yes, but in the excess can also decrease the amount of thyroid that's circulating around your system. So once she removed it, her thyroid went back into the normal range. So in that situation, under without doctor supervision, 250 milligrams to 500 milligrams would be the recommended dosage. When you just start exceeding over 500 to 1,000 to 2,000 to 3,000 milligrams, you're putting, uh, a, for people who are on hormone replacement, thyroid meds are potentiating the chances of having adverse reactions and losing the efficacy of the, the drug itself. One of the other reasons why um, estrogen dominance happens is, is our liver gets flooded, okay? Our liver, is, our liver is basically a filter, okay? And what happens when you have all this excess of xenoestrogens and along with the other toxins we have to deal with, those all have to be filtered out. What happens is our screens tend to clog, okay? And when our screens tend to clog, our liver's not functioning right, then we lose the function of bile, okay? One of the reasons why um, estrogen become problematic in the liver is because it will thicken bile. When it starts to thicken bile, this is, will cause, um, this will cause your body to slow down completely. And it will also cause problems with constipation. So you're kind of catching in a catch-22 situation where you've got these toxins out, but you can't produce enough bile to get, the to get the stuff moving and to dump out into the colon to get your colon to move. Because bile is needed for peristalsis. And a lot of people with constipation 
again, estrogen dominance can cause constipation because of the effect it has on not only the serotonin and neurotransmitters, but also the thickening of the bile within the liver to help potentiate um, peristalsis. Um, we also know that alcohol is a major component for estrogen dominance. All right. Men who drink a lot of alcohol will end up with gynecomastia. Gynecomastia is when the breast tissue of a male looks like that of a female. This also goes for females as well. If they tend to drink a lot of alcohol, they will tend to be increased estrogen-dominant symptoms, okay? So drinking alcohol is fine, provided your body can detoxify it. But with how our livers are today, we're not that great at detoxifying uh, anything and can cause major problems. So with that being said, it's like what can we do to help the estrogen dominance? One of the things we can do is definitely increase our fiber intake, okay? Um, we can use what's called, um, which is, we can use what's called lectithins. It's a phospholipid, um, which helps to bind the estrogens. This is normally found in flax seeds. It could be found in um, flax seeds, chia seeds. Uh, phospholipid can also help as well um, because the lignans that are found within the flax seeds and other foods helps bind with estrogens. Uh, we can also work on increasing the bile production by using milk thistle, dandelion root, and other um, liver detoxifying herbs. Another way to do it, we can also use inositol and choline. These two help to thin out the bile. Uh, Tarmine can be used at low dosages because that also helps to that also helps to thin out the bile. Another imbalance that we tend to see with women is um, progesterone estrogen balances. Progesterone and estrogen balance are very, very common even in women that are 25 to 30 years old. You would be amazing to see how many women 25 to 30 years old that actually have low progesterone levels. Without progesterone, the ability to conceive would not happen. Um, I can't tell you how many women I've ran into who couldn't conceive and once you got their progesterone levels up and got their thyroid adjusted, they were able to conceive very easily. Um, and when you're looking at serum, the optimal level that's been found for increased conception rate is during the luteal phase, you want to be up around 10 to 15. Um, when, serum levels are, when serum levels of progesterone are detected um, in the blood for women, on the average right now, I'm seeing around anywhere between four to six. And that's during, the, that's during the luteal phase when the best time for progesterone and estrogen should be tested. Whenever testing for female hormones, it needs to be done on day 17 to 21 year cycle, okay? If you're testing by blood, you want your levels to probably be around 10 to 15 or higher. When you're testing through saliva, you want to check the saliva to see what the scales are, and you want to be in the mid-range. You can also have an estrogen dominance, even though that you're progesterone and estrogen deficient. 
it's the ratio between the progesterone and estrogen, which is one of the most crucial. So just because you come back with um, low estrogen, you're not free from being estrogen dominant. And a lot of women will use natural progesterone to help balance the excess of estrogen. Um, some of the forms that you can use, you can use progest, you can use, um, there's another one, you can use bioidentical hormones from your doctor, and I would highly suggest using a trained physician to monitor your progesterone and estrogen imbalances because it can become very tricky. If a person's on thyroid and they start working with the progesterone and estrogen imbalances, it may make the thyroid work more effectively because estrogen actually blocks the thyroid receptors. So women who are taking thyroid and may not be getting the maximum effect out of it, you may want to check for estrogen dominance, not only in the progesterone-estrogen balance, but also the, also the metabolites, which is the two, which is the good one, the four and the 16, which are the bad estrogens. I've seen many times where women have got good progesterone, good estrogen levels, but have bad metabolites. And this in itself can affect um, that thyroid function. And when you're testing for thyroid function in relationship to estrogen, because estrogen will affect thyroid receptors, you look at the thyroid binding globulin. So if a doctor or physician is expecting, is anticipating estrogen dominance in a female and they're on thyroid hormone, I always want to check the thyroid binding globulin just to make sure that the thyroid's getting the proper functionality and not being blocked by estrogen. Another way to control estrogen is controlling our body weight. If a person's overweight, they're going to have more estrogen. The more, the heavier you are, the more aromatase you have. Okay, this also goes for guys and females. This is why women who are in their 40s and 50s start gaining weight, because this is when the natural estrogen starts to decline. Okay, and when your natural estrogen starts to decline, your body is going to try to maintain homeostasis. The way it does it is by creating more adipose tissue and more aromatase. And when that happens, this is where the women tend to get the, the extra body fat they can't get rid of. This is also coupled by uh, adrenal imbalance as well because adrenals will help control estrogen dominance. There's many times where I've worked on women's cases to where correcting the adrenal imbalances corrected the estrogen dominance itself because the adrenals is where the majority of the progesterone can come from um, as well as testosterone. So if a, for practitioners, if a woman's in a state of estrogen dominance before giving them progesterone, you may want to work to get the adrenals in check to where they may not need it in the first place. Sean. What is aromatase and what is its function? Aromatase is the enzyme by which um, testosterone is converted into estrogen. It's, in a male, it can cause, in a male it can be very problematic, but aromatase increases, which is the enzyme which makes estrogen in increased body fat. Mm. So in a woman, as they get older, their estrogen will start to decrease and they'll start to accumulate body fat in order to make up the difference. 
You'll also see your cholesterol level rise too, okay? A lot of women's cholesterol will start to rise as they get older. And when they properly treat the estrogen, it will actually help the cholesterol profile, getting the estrogen dominance in check. Because estrogen can control, um, has a major control over insulin. This is where a lot of PCOS comes from, post-systemic, or this is where PCOS comes from. And there's a lot of women out there that have it that have insulin resistance. Those two usually run hand in hand together. I noticed that PCOS is is really kind of ubiquitous in the, the women who are, are very heavy. Oh, absolutely. They're running... Most, people, most women with PCOS have low SHBG, which is representation of insulin resistance in the first place. Um, and they're also usually iodine deficient. Because iodine is a major component for estrogen control because it converts the 16-hydroxy into estriol, which is the protective one. Just to give a brief rundown, you have, S, you have E1, E2, and E3. E3 is protective estrogen, known as estriol. E2 is estradiol, and E1 is esterone. E1 and E2, which is esterone and estradiol, go back and forth one another. Um, and they're the ones that go into the metabolites, known as the 2 and 16,4 hydroxy. The ratio depends upon a whole bunch of factors. Thyroid, uh, a lot of times when I see an altered 2 and 16 hydroxy ratio, I'll look in the thyroid because this is why people that have thyroid issues go potentially go on to have a higher risk of breast cancer because of the shift of the of the more likely from the bad to good, from the uh, good into the bad. Wow. So now everybody wants to wonder why. How is this related to the SNPs? All right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to basically go through in a brief outline of how this occurs. Basically, um, when you look at the CYP1A1, 1B1s, what you're doing is you're looking at the estrogen-dominant SNPs. When you see these patterns, first of all, um, you'll see a lot of these elevated or red or yellows in people that have a potentiation for breast cancer to go on in the future, or they tend to have a already a history of breast cancer, uterinary, or ovarian um, problems. Uh, In males, this usually leads into prosthetic enlargement because of the estrogen dominance, okay? It's not always the DHT that causes the problem. More likely, it's the estrogen than DHT that causes problem in prosthetic enlargement as well as cancers, all right? So when you're looking at the CYP1B1 and 1A1s, what you want to think about is, number one is, is if a woman has breast cancer, you want to look at the history. The first thing you want to look at is, is you want to look at how much coffee they consume. The more coffee they consume with a CYP1B1 or 1A1, the more likely they won't break down estrogen. The same pathway that detoxifies caffeine detoxifies estrogen. So if a person is predispositioned to a higher risk of cancer, you may want to re you may want to reevaluate your coffee intake, okay? Or just caffeine in general. It's just not coffee, it's caffeine as well, um, which could be sodas. It could be um, Mountain Dews. So you need to look through this history with your client 
to find out what their diet looks like, how much coffee they're drinking, to ascertain the impact that the, the CYP1A1, A2, and 1B1 has on estrogen metabolism. Because it's the CYP1B1 and 1A1 and 1A2 that have to do with the proper metabolism of the, in, from the estrogens into good and bad. So in this situation, what I'll probably do is, is if they're on hormone replacement therapy or thinking about going to hormone replacement therapy, I will always have them check their 2-16-4-hydroxy because as a practitioner, I do not want to put that person into a position to where they could potentiate uh, risks of high risk of cancer um, because of giving hormones to a person. And a lot of practitioners I deal with, they rarely ever check that. Um, they, they'll put on progesterone, put them on estrogen without checking the metabolites. And if they have a history of breast cancer or ovarian or urinary problems, I will not make that recommendation to the, I will not make it the recommendation to the doctor until the metabolites are checked into. So what you're saying so, is that a lot of the doctors are only checking the uh, levels of progesterone and estrogen, but not the metabolites. Correct. Okay. Alrighty. And so, is that something that um, that a patient should walk in and say, you know, advise their doctors that they would like the metabolites checked also? Absolutely. You can do that through Genova 24-hour complete hormone test. There's also another laboratory called Rhine that does a complete hormone profile. Um, mm-hmm. They got they do like 48 hormones for $220, I think it is, um, which is you know which is out of pocket expensive, which is very affordable. Um, you can use Meridian Labs also has it. So there are labs out there that would. So they're um, they're available. They're available. They just simply the doctor simply needs to know how to do it and when to do it and how to read it. Exactly. You yeah. know, and that's really? that's protective. Hmm? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's where, you know, sometimes people think, oh, I'm progesterone dominant or progesterone deficient, estrogen dominant. I'm like, okay, well, maybe with the CYP1A1 and 1B1s, let's try some DIM or let's try some um, IC3 with you. Because IC3 is a component that's found in broccoli um, that you, one, need proper stomach acids in order to convert into DIM. So DIM is actually the bio, a bioavailable form of IC3. IC3 is a component that's actually found in broccoli. And it is a sulfur-based component, but I don't mm-hmm. think it's going to be enough to throw a person with a CBS pathway off that much. I'm glad you said that because a lot of people, um, you know, uh, shy away from DIM because of that. You know, there's a question here is that if one has multiple CYP SNFs, estrogen related, how much caffeine can they have a week? Two glasses of two glasses of tea? Question mark. Again, you've got to look at the past history. If they have consumption of, of caffeine in they've got excess amount of caffeine where it's like two, three over two or three cups a day 
then you would probably recommend them to cut it out. If they've been a moderation drinker, I don't think they have anything to worry about having one or two cups a day. It's when you go into these offices and you see these women that are drinking half a pot of coffee a day that you get really concerned with. Um, and I'm sure, Jesse, in your practice, you sure see a lot of people who are heavy coffee drinkers. Oh, absolutely. Now, is it just coffee or is it also the caffeine from tea? Um, it's also ca- it's caffeine in general, but coffee would be the major contributing. Coffee okay. would probably be the major one because you don't get that much caffeine in tea, so to speak. Um, now, if a woman is a heavy soft, now if a woman is a heavy diet Coke drinker, that's a different mm-hmm. situation. Right there, people uh, don't realize that in certain sodas that there's a fair amount of caffeine. You mentioned it before, Mountain Dew, um, Diet Coke, Diet Pepsi, uh, or regular Pepsi, regular Coke. There's a fair amount of uh, caffeine substances in there. Yeah, and when you see the patterns that are associated with the CYP1A1s, 1B1s, um, you also want to ask them if they responded negatively to birth control. Um, normally, with the CY, normally when the CYP1, A1, 1B1 ones combine with the COMTs, there's going to be usually a history of a bad reaction to birth control. It's kind of interesting to see the reaction that you, that you get as a practitioner when you ask that. So like, how do you know? I said, well, it's right here. Um, and one of the reasons being is, is the catecholamine methyltransferase is needed to break down estrogens. I just had a woman today, as soon as I saw her profile, I felt real bad for her. And the first, you know, I see a lot of people, and I don't remember, you know, unfortunately I can't remember everybody's name and stuff. But as soon as I saw her profile, the first words out of my mouth was breast cancer. And, you know, as a preventative, she took the most extreme cautious not to worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, actually had, and actually did the same thing um, 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 Brad Pitt's wife, Annalena Jolie, did a double bisect. Um, she got both breasts removed. Right, to, the, as like a preventative that. measure. As a preventative measure. Um, yeah. Because yeah, absolutely. The history, because the history was showing it that it was going to be there. It was just a matter of time. So why take the risk? I mean, that's the most extreme case. Um, but that was her choice, you know. And when I saw her profile, you know, multiple COMTs, CYPs, methylation was altered. I mean, it was just the it was just the optimal environment for an estrogen-related cancer to occur. Mm. The same thing also applies with women that um, with daughters and stuff. Okay. If you get your daughter's, if you do your daughter's 23andMe, you see CYP1B1A1s and COMTs, and she's six or seven years old. And now she's turning 13, 14, and she's starting to run like a wild woman. You know that, you know, and they're starting to have depression and everything else, that you know that the most likely cause would have been an estrogen balance. And instead of giving her antidepressants or anything, you may want to revisit the estrogen dominance and resolve it from the root course of the pro- the root the root so, um, the core of the problem. 
Um, it's very interesting to see when I get women that are in their 16s, 17s, and they're on four, four or five different types of psychotic drugs. Uh, when the first question out of my mouth as soon as I see the profile is, is by the way, when did you get your birth control? Oh, I got it when I was 14. I got it when I was 15, right. 16. Oh, when did I your agree. symptoms start? Um, when I was, you know, 16, 17, I said, well, most likely what happened was is a lot of those problems were caused from the birth control and its effect on how your body was metabolizing it properly. And you'll see the history of this in the CYP and CRMT pathway because it's usually these type of people that start out with birth control, have a bad reaction, they end up in an estrogen dominance progesterone deficiency, then they end up in hysterectomies, mm -hmm. which is the end result when you check back through the history of this occurring. So you can actually see a woman who had a hysterectomy at, say, 40, 45, and then you look at her SNPs, and you can see, now I can show you how this potentially happened based upon your genetics and looking at your past history. Just because they have the redness and the yellow and the SNPs does not mean it's expressive. Looking at the history will dictate if it's expressive or not. That's where a train... Say that again and say it loud. Say it again and say it loud. Okay? When looking, at, <laughs> when looking at the SNPs, do not look to see, do not assume that they're expressive. You want to look at the person's history and how this led up to their current health issue to see if they're expressive or not. That is the most exactly true. important thing I can emphasize because even though that a person may have red CYP1B1s, you know, but they may not have a history of breast cancer, may not have problems with estrogen metabolites. Is there potential there? Yes. But that person eats clean. They came from a good household. Um, they've got optimal thyroid function. So those are the things you have to be conscious of. And that the polymorphisms, the SNPs that you're looking at, are not a diagnosis. They are no. possibilities. Okay, and they help, exactly. they help when, you have, when you're confused and you need direction, but they are not diagnoses. And we have to start getting away from uh, the thought that the genetics is the end-all and the know-all. It's certainly part of the big, bigger picture, which is why you and I have come up with bioindividualized medicine, because we look at all aspects of health, not just the genetics, whereas other doctors may not <clears throat> even look at the genetics or solely look at the genetics. I've seen treatment plans that, you know, treat just the polymorphisms, and let's face it, that's not only expensive but very foolish, and you're not really doing Absolutely. the service for someone. Absolutely. Well, we're at, we're at that 20-minute mark that I promised everybody for a Q&A session, um, so I'm going to say that we've got 20 minutes for questions and answers, and um, I'd like to see some phone calls. If you uh, want to call in, it's 646-595-2277, and Sean will be happy to answer your questions. While we're waiting, I had a little um, ditty written up about um, endocrine-disrupting compounds, which uh, Sean alluded to already. <clears throat> Just to put a little head on it, that endocrine-disrupting compounds are chemicals that may interfere with the production, activity, or metabolism of human hormones. 
Uh, these things are things like plastics, solvents, lubricants, flame retardants, pharmaceutical agents, heavy metals, and if we are old enough, we remember DDT. Uh, in certain studies, they found 116 chemicals in the blood of an adult, where, and in the cord blood of a newborn, they found 358 chemicals. So we are in a chemically dominant society. Uh, these EDCs can have estrogenic effects, androgenic effects, anti-androgenic effects, anti-thyroid effects, and thyroid effects. They will affect areas, all the hormone-sensitive systems, like we were talking about a couple of uh, weeks ago, that it will affect the brain. It'll affect the HPA axis, which runs your adrenal gland. It'll affect your thyroid gland, your reproductive system, and your nervous system. It doesn't, the hormones don't hang out there by themselves. Imbalances here, estrogen dominance is going to affect a whole mess of different things. What are they? Things like BPA, that bisphenol A, uh, which um, the estrogenic activity of it has been linked to infertility, thyroid disease, changes in social behavior. Gee, I wonder where that came from. <clears throat> Asthma, cardiovascular disease, and PCOS. Uh, other things like dioxins. Okay, we can get exposed in ultra-low levels, but the half-life of the dioxin in your, in your body is 7 to 11 years. Okay, so, um, wow. Sean talked about the plastics, the flexible plastics. These are considered phthalates, okay, and they're found in adhesives. They're found in um, rubber duckies, any kind of plastics that you can bend. But guess where it's also found? In hairspray and nail polish. So ladies, um, wow, you've got to be careful what you're putting into your bodies and what you're putting on your bodies, okay? Other sources of EDCs. You know, chicken, they give chicken estrogen to um, increase their breast size. Okay, well, I'm not going to make a joke out of that because I get in trouble for making jokes. <clears throat> and uh, tofu or soy are estrogenic. And believe it or not, in a lot of the makeup that you use, ladies, they put progesterone, especially the makeup that is supposed to regulate um, the lines, you know, the aging lines. Okay, always have hormones in them, so... These are not great things. Some things you, some things that, uh, some medications that you can take that have been taken will not only affect you but affect your offspring. Remember DES, diethylsebestrol that was given to prevent um, miscarriages? Okay, it made with the women who take it increased risk of cancer, but their daughters had infertility and pregnancy complications, and their sons had uh, decreased sperm counts and other difficulties. Some of the things you can do to decrease or minimize your exposure, exposure uh, Sean already uh, attended to, was uh, trimming the fat from meat, avoiding plastic storage containers, uh, try and get to organically produced items, avoid living in regions with high toxicity, like being right next to a um, highway, maybe reducing the use of canned goods and other food items packed in plastic. And you know those paper receipts that they tear off and give you, the ones that are the heat, um, you know, has a kind of little bit of a smell to it, believe it or not. That's a big EDC. There is a question here. Um, does vitamin, IV vitamin C help regulate hormones? 
IV vitamin C will actually help to decrease estrogen. I had a client who went into an IV um, therapy with vitamin C and other minerals, and because she was so estrogen dominant, the day after her breast actually shrunk. Um, Vitamin C is a great eraser. It helps to metabolize a lot of the estrogens. Vitamin C is also needed to um, help convert um, um, quinolones, which can come from estrogen dominance um, as a byproduct, which is an oxidative stress. So, yes, vitamin C is crucial to help hormone control because vitamin C is not just a nutrient. It's also an adaptogen. And as an adaptogen, it has the ability to help regulate um, adrenal function. As I mentioned earlier before, adrenal dysfunction can actually lead into um, progesterone deficiency. Hmm. So it helps with the metabolism. It helps with um, metabolizing the estrogen. It also helps to uh, the adrenal glands with controlling the um, um, keeping the progesterone in production due to its effect on the adrenal glands. Okay, I changed from my headset to this because I'm being told that it is an echo. Does anybody else have any questions for Sean? Uh, I can hear you breathing out there, guys. Okay, we've got uh, we've got about 15 minutes left, so I know that there's a ton of questions. Sean? Yes. Okay, just making sure you're there. Okay, I'm still here. Kinda, okay, we're well, we're hoping um, helping people get. Well, but there's continue, no questions continue. or anything. Um, I want to bring up to the um, a point about what's called Premarin. Premarin okay. is a lot of the Premarin is a, a common drug that's used for birth control, and bioidentical hormones get a bad rap because they're listed as potential cancer. Um, they potentiate cancer, but you have to identify. You have to know that putting bioidentical drug put, putting bioidentical hormones in the same classification as a pharmaceutical drug is like comparing apples to oranges. Um, can progesterone potentially cause problems? Bioidentical? Yes, if your metabolites aren't correct, because progesterone has the capability of going down different pathways, and estrogen is actually one of them. So is DHEA. Uh, so is cortisol. But again, when you're dealing with pharmaceutical estrogens, it's completely different. They're methylated, okay? And Premarin, guess what? It stands for pre-mare, which means what they do is they take a horse and without getting too graphic, they strap it down and actually excrete, they actually extract the urine from a pregnant mare, okay? And that's what they're formulating the drug off of. I thought that's what they were using for that HCG diet also. Um, it's, a comp- it's a component of a preg- uh, of um, um, it's a it's a component of that. Yes. Hmm. There's another question here. It says my estradiol ultra sensitive is ten, and my progesterone is zero uh, zero point zero five, previously twenty seven. 
Um, yes, 2-7. Is that balanced? I am 48. Um, in order to get a good idea of that, you would have to go, remember, serum is just a snapshot, okay? You want to get the whole motion picture. In that instance, you would want to do either progesterone saliva, progesterone estrogen saliva, or you want to do a 24-hour urine test. Um, it's hard to get it off the blood um, because their range, those ranges are, you know, so narrow. They need a better look. Number one is, is I would want to look at your SNPs. Number two, I would want to look at the past history. Are you gaining? Are you having problems gaining weight? Uh, or I mean, are you having problems losing weight? Uh, do you feel sluggish? Are you losing hair? Are you getting hot flashes? Meaning, um, you know, at bed, do you sweat at nighttime? Those are all the questions that you have to ask based upon the symptomology of if there's an imbalance or not. Hmm. Okay, hopefully there'll be more questions. Somebody typing. Oh, they're both typing. Lots of people typing away, you know? <laughs> Uh, I'm, yeah, I can see I can see the word typing, <laughs> and then we're going to see how um, if it actually comes up. But um, a lot of good questions, a lot of good questions. Come on, guys! I know you have questions out there. Don't be afraid to call. Nobody will bite. I have a cat here. He doesn't bite. He likes to go. Wah! Anyway. Um, well, while those are coming through, you were talking more. You were talking about Premarin. Yeah, um, you, like I said, you can't compare uh, pharmaceutical grade to bioidentical um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's it's how it's methylated. I mean, oh, you take progesterone; it's methyl progesterone or methyl ester. It's methyl ester dial. Okay, mm-hmm. it's not bioidentical. All right. Um, the, the same person who um, asked the prior question asks says that. I have no menopausal symptoms. Why not? You have no menopausal symptoms as of now? That's why she said, why not? There could be multiple factors going on. There could be multiple factors. Genetics could be a, uh, genetics could be an answer. She's got good genetics. Um, she ha- I don't know how she lives her life. I don't know what her coffee intake is. I don't know what areas she lives in. I mean, there's she probably so many has, different... She probably has good, de- good detoxification pathways. She <clears throat> has good detoxification pathways, absolutely. Um, that's why you have to look at the history and, and symptom, current symptomology um, to know. Because estrogen, do- estrogen dominance can manifest it in so many different ways. She may not have symptoms of estrogen dominance or progesterone deficiency, but she could have anxiety or anything that could be manifestations of it. It's hard just to say there's no symptoms. If there's no symptoms, then you're healthy as a horse. True. I would have to look at your, I would have to look at your blood you, profile. You'd need, you'd, need you'd need a lot more information for that one. I would need a lot more um, information. To identify there's, a, there's another question here that... Um, an internal medicine, uh, one, one person writes that her internal medicine doctor wants her to take a custom compounded BHRT with BS mixed with progesterone and testosterone. 
She's getting IV vitamin C now and have not taken the BHRT. Would you recommend that I get my hormone levels checked after the IVC infusions? Did they do a baseline to see where your levels are before they administered the BHRT? What was, no, the, no. What was the basis of what they are giving their BHRT from? Well, she's typing, she's typing out an answer now. And if she's low on testosterone, guess what? You better check your DHEAS levels. If your DHEAS levels are low or in the mid-low mid ranges, I would not supplement testosterone or any of that stuff because most of that stuff by giving DHEA other than progesterone will go downstream into potential testosterone and estrogen itself. You always want to push the one pathway first before adding another variable to it. And by, if her DHEA level is low, guess what? If she's given testosterone, her DHEA level might take a nosedive because the body's going to sense testosterone levels there and it's going to shut down its own production cause a negative feedback loop. She says that I had, I had the test before the IV vitamin C and I was low in estrogen, no testosterone, and low progesterone. And where was her DHEAS? Okay. Let me type it in. Because I can't tell you how many women I've dealt with that when they're on testosterone, I look at their DHEA, it's ground zero or at the low normal range. And I said, was it this way before you went to hormone replacement therapy? They're like, yes. I said, did your practitioner know by giving DHEA actually increases testosterone in women? She goes, no. She says uh, low DHEA. If you're low DHEA, I would not supplement testosterone. You want to push the DHEA up to see what it does to the body. If she was on DHEA and she pushed her levels up, and it didn't go to testosterone, then you go into testosterone replacement therapy. What um, these type of clinic, there's type, type of clinics out of there that will just give you bioidentical hormones uh, and play fill the gas tank. And when you play fill the gas tank, you're causing a, potentiating a lot more problems um, than what you currently have already. So by using the DHEA, alone by itself, I've seen women's levels double or triple testosterone levels, okay, with DHEA. It all depends on how the body's going to respond. But you always want to give the precursors first before giving the actual amount. And as I said before, if her testosterone levels, if she's on testosterone, it's going to cause a negative feedback loop to the adrenals and say, hey, I have enough testosterone. Why do I need DHEA? Shut down. Guess what? DHEA levels are low for a reason. It's usually immune system related or she's not sleeping right. So with that said, you've got to look at the circadian rhythm. You've got to look at the adrenal. Again, you go back to the adrenal glands. You go back to the root cause of the problem and work on the sleep hygiene. Okay. Uh, she said she had low DHEA and she was not on DHEA at the time, but she understood your response and thanks you for it. That's a, that's a really that is a good response because you have a you know you have a great way of putting it, uh, Sean. So everybody understands it. Because you know, sometimes these hormonal negative feedback loops can get 
rather um, tedious, you know, and uh, they can get very confusing for some people, for a lot of people and a lot of doctors too. So you exactly correct. A lot of a lot of doctors play. Let's fill up the gas tank, and they're actually not helping people. Okay. And you know, yeah. it's it's also you know giving them you're adding more variables to the puzzle, which is making it more difficult to isolate the variable. Um, right. When we have clients that come to us on bias, testosterone, DHEA, progesterone, then they add in like growth hormone and thyroid on top of it, it's a living nightmare because you don't know what's doing what. Where you should be, you should have been layering it to see what works. Do the neurotransmitters, the adrenal glands, see what happens by addressing the adrenal glands by giving the proper DHEA or by correcting the circadian rhythm that increases the DHEA. Um, as, you and know, you, as you and I know, we're always looking at a cause and effect relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and that is, that is the, the basis of why we're successful in what we're doing is because we listen, we look for the cause and effect relationship, and we never say to anybody, that can't happen. We may look at somebody and say, boy, that usually doesn't happen, but we start looking for the reasons why it happened, okay? And it's that kind of thinking that has, you know, spurred us to more study and say, gee, this, this is why this is happening. And once you know why something's happening, fixing it is not a big, fat, hairy deal. Also, with bioidentical hormones, you got to, you know, you better be checking those clotting factors because if, you, if you're on progesterone or estrogen, guess what? Those can create clots. Okay, mm-hmm. so if a person has a predisposition to clotting they don't know about, they could potentially right, exactly. be causing, causing major exactly problems. Exactly true. Absolutely, um, absolutely. All right, um, we actually have about, about a minute and a half left. Do you have any closing comments or advice that you'd like to give? Uh, just when you're working with the SNPs and stuff, just keep in mind that you always want to look at pathology and you always want to look at symptomology um, and to see how they're expressing. Uh, when doing hormone replacement therapy, please get with a trained and knowledgeable functional medicine doctor or other practitioner who understands these enzymatic pathways because, unfortunately, a lot of this stuff is not taught in medical school. And a lot of these doctors are going out on their own and doing modules and stuff. Uh, and I'm, I'm always here to help. Uh, a lot of the clients I have aren't just clients from doctors. It's doctors themselves um, that are, I'm helping to rebalance their chemistry in order for them to be able to help other people. Because a, a practitioner isn't, if a practitioner isn't healthy, they're not going to be able to help their clients or their patients. That's absolutely true. Sean, you're a great man. You are, you are just an absolute uh, you know, fountain of information. Guys, um, thank you for listening tonight. Next week I'm going to give a lecture on how to read your 23andMe, how to read the app. Uh, everybody's going a little nuts trying to read it. I'm going to give you an uh, overview of how to read the uh, polymorphisms uh, so you don't drive yourself crazy. Okay? And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for your attention. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.